2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So a light passage this morning. Not really. Um, the main reason I'm taking up this passage this morning, uh, primarily for one question, it's a question that Peter poses. He says, what sort of people ought we to be? And it's a great question. What sort of people ought we to be? If you had to answer that question right now, what would you say? We are in the context of church, so it might go something like, we should be followers of Christ. Yes, and that is true, and yet pressed further with, with all of our relationships and all of our responsibilities, what sort of people ought we to be? And this question could be answered in a number of ways. I'll give one example that's more of a negative example. This question was asked years ago to Duke's Business School. They, it was asked essentially, what sort of people ought you to be? But here was their answer. With few exceptions, they wanted three things, money, power, and things, very big things, including vacation homes, expensive foreign automobiles, yachts, and even airplanes. Primarily concerned with their careers and the growth of their financial portfolios, their personal plans contain little room for family, intellectual development, spiritual growth, or social responsibility. Their mandate to the faculty was, teach me how to be a money-making machine. Give me only the facts, tools, and techniques required to ensure my instantaneous financial success. All else was irrelevant. Okay, so I'm not assuming we would claim that necessarily this morning, 
We're not going to claim that we desire a yacht. We live in Kansas. I, I get that. But what shaped their vision of who they ought to be? It was money and power, things of that nature that drove it. What shapes our vision? What shapes our vision of the sort of people that we ought to be? Peter, in this passage, presses this question even deeper. Peter says, in light of the end of the world, what sort of people ought we to be? And, and, and we, can, we can accuse Peter. He was kind of that radical disciple, right? Pretty extreme at times. Here he is. Oftentimes, Peter's talking about wrath and judgment and hell. But then we have to ask, in the scriptures, who spoke the most of wrath and judgment and hell? It was actually Jesus. Peter is simply echoing Jesus' words throughout this passage. And so we really must take great care to listen. In light of the end of the world, what sort of people ought we to be? And Peter is going to lay out for us in this passage two things, essentially. What is going to happen at the end when Christ returns and why it's significant for us now with our present relationships and responsibilities. If you notice, we're in 2 Peter 3. This is his last chapter. So there, there's an urgency about it. And Peter himself is heading towards the end of his life. And he says... In uh, verse, or chapter 1, verse 13, Peter says, I think it right, as long as I'm in the body, to stir you up by reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So here we have Peter that urgently wants to give us a message, knowing that he's towards the end of his life. And then in verse 3, or chapter 3 and verse 1, he speaks that, again, that he wants to stir us up to sincere, uh, by sincere mind, by way of reminder. Okay. In the way of reminder, he goes on to say that you should remember, verse 2, the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So Peter's laying out this urgent message. And, and what he's done so far in the book of Second Peter is especially in the first chapter, he's really trying to solidify his followers' faith, that they would grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. And in chapter 2, he spends a great deal of time speaking about false teachers. Okay, He opposes them, he exposes their false doctrine, and especially that they are carried away by their own lusts. And now in chapter 3, in light of all that, he has a great reminder for us. And his reminder centers on this day of the Lord that the scriptures speak about. And in fact, we have a prophet like Isaiah in chapter 66 who says this, For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. It's a sobering passage, and Peter is reminding us to be sober, to recognize this day of the Lord that the Bible speaks of, that the prophets spoke of. It's a day that is coming. But Peter says, remember, and especially verses 3 and 4, knowing this, first of all, 
that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Okay. So scoffers will come in the last days, Peter says. Last days. That's a term in the scripture. It's a loaded term. Last days refers to the time between the first coming, the advent of Christ, in his birth, in his death, in his resurrection, the first coming of Christ, but also the second coming of Christ, when he will return. And so when the Bible speaks of the last days, we have to recognize that we're living in the last days. And Peter says, in these last days, scoffers will come. And these scoffers are false teachers. They reject Christ. They reject his gospel. They reject the reality that he has acted in judgment in the past, and he will again in the future. They ridicule, and, and, we, and Peter has, Peter has ver- various uh, strong words about these false teachers. We see this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with many false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And we see the severity. We see their mocking in verse 4. Where they're saying essentially, where is this promise of his coming? Where is he? And they go on to talk about the fathers have fallen asleep. That fathers, a reference to the Old Testament saints. They've fallen asleep. They have died. And yet, what they're saying is, life continues on. Life continues on. And where is this promise of his coming? Verse 5. They deliberately overlook deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished but by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly Peter's saying They deliberately overlook God's action, his intervention in the world. They overlook the reality that God acted in the past in creation. And then he acted decisively in a judgment through the flood. And that that is a pattern that will continue in the future. He will act decisively again in the future in a final judgment. And to many, this is absurd. It's absurd to think that the world will come to an end. Many just believe the world will continue on. And Peter is making a great point. He's saying, if God acted in the past in creation, he is more than able to act again in a judgment. Or maybe we could put it a different way. For those that do believe that there was no act of creation, that the creation is just simply by accident, To follow that to its logical conclusion, then life is simply meaningless, and we can live any way we want. But if God did create, and he did, he is able to judge. He is more 
than able to judge. And so Peter reminds us, just as in the past, God purged the world of sin and rebellion by his word and through water, in the future, God will purge his world of sin and rebellion by his word through fire in the judgment day. So we are living in the last days, and scoffers really are all around us. And the sense of scoffing, of denying the reality of God in the world, his action in the world, denying Christ, denying that there could be any future judgment. And this scoffing at times takes place, times very directly, but also indirectly. As an example, indirectly. When was the last time you heard a meteorologist say, Boy, this storm here is going to be pretty bad, but it's nothing compared to the storm that the scriptures speak of of Judgment Day. Obviously, no, they would never say that. They would lose their jobs. But my point is simply this. There's a constant drip in our culture that says God is out of the picture. Life continues on, and God has nothing to do with it. But sometimes the mocking in our, in our culture is a bit more direct. And by this, I'll just refer to a few musical poets. Okay? One of them will be from the best generation of music, the 80s. So here we are. Whoa, you don't have to die and go to heaven or hang around to be born again. Just tune in to what this place has got to offer because we may never be here again. I want the best of both worlds. And honey, I know what it's worth. If we could have the best of both worlds, a little heaven right here on earth. I know, that song has a great guitar. I know. But just hear the message. Okay. Or how about a top hit from this generation? And I do not say this to be provocative, but this is a top hit playing on the radios everywhere. Let's go all the way tonight, no regrets, just love. We can dance until we die, you and I. We'll be young forever. And that song repeats over and over. Don't ever look back, don't ever look back. Okay, so the message, loud and clear, the constant drip. Just tune into what this world has to offer and don't ever look back, don't ever look back. Okay. I recognize that for some of the teenagers in the room, you may think, okay, first, Chad, you're just, you're just not cool, and, and second, it's just a song. I'll grant you the first one. You're right, I'm not cool. <laughs> but to the second one, it's not just a song. It, this is just a constant drip in our culture. And if I can echo the words, don't look back, don't ever look back, what does God call us to do constantly? To look back, to look back at the miraculous birth of Christ, of his ministry on the earth, of his death on a cross and his resurrection. And that points us to the present. God acted in the past. He acts in the present. He is our infinite personal God. He is above us, and yet he, is, he draws near to us. And that points us to the future, that he will act again in the future in a decisive judgment. The constant drip of the culture and our busy lives can desensitize us to the reality and we can overlook the reality that Jesus will return and that a day of judgment is coming. 
I mean, for instance, honestly, and you don't have to show hands, how many of us this morning, how many of you actively thought about the return of Christ this morning before you came into the service? Okay, I did. I was praying that he would before I preach. <laughs> okay, but here we are. But really, how often do we contemplate the return of Christ in our lives? But Peter's words must ring true in our ears. Because judgment day is coming, and the earth and the works that we do will be exposed, what sort of people ought we to be? And this really should inform our perspective and our priorities. We really, as the people of God, should live in a different manner than the world lives. And so, Peter made the case that the scoffers overlooked the reality of God's judgment in the world. But then it's interesting what Peter does in verse 8. He says to us, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We mustn't miss, we mustn't overlook God's mercy, his grace to us here. And Peter is echoing Psalm 90 in verse 4, which says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past, or as a watch in the night. God is sovereign over time. He's outside of time. His perspective on time is simply different than our perspective on time. Is God slow? Is he late? That's what the scoffers say. But what scripture says is it's not that God is slow. It's not that he's late. It's that he's what? He's patient. Why is he patient? He's patient to give people, to give his people time to repent and to bow their knees before him. The scriptures say that he's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is gracious. Obviously, this does not teach universalism, the idea that everybody's going to be saved. Clearly, the scoffers in this passage will not be saved because they have rebelled against God. They have mocked Christ in his return. This is not teaching universalism. But we have to recognize where it is true that God has decreed judgment for the ungodly. We also have to recognize God's heart, his desire. His desire is that all would reach repentance. We can't overlook God's grace here in this passage. Okay, and this brings us to verse 10. And this is a very important verse for us. Because the question of what sort of people ought we to be is tied to verse 10. And in particular, there's two questions that Peter will answer. What will happen in the future when Christ returns? But also what we have to answer is why is that important for how we live today? What will happen in the future, but how is this important for us today? And so first, what will happen? Peter is fairly brief here. He hits the essence of it. I'll be fairly brief as well. First, Jesus will come like a thief. And Jesus told that to his disciples. We have it in Luke chapter 12. You must also be ready, he says, 
For the Son of Man has come in in an hour that you do not expect. And as well in Matthew 24, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Stay awake. Jesus told his disciples to be ready. And in this passage goes on to say that the heavens will pass away with a roar. Isaiah and other portions of scripture and picked up as well in Revelation speaks of the heavens being rolled up like a scroll. And then as well in Revelation in multiple places speaks of this day as a great and violent earthquake to a degree that the world has never known. And just think about this. One of the things that's fascinating about the book of Revelation is the imagery it gives us because words won't do justice. This day is described as an earthquake that we can't even wrap our brains around fully. Passage goes on to say in the heavenly bodies or the elements, meaning the sun, the moon, and the stars, will be burned up and dissolved. And then this, the end of verse 10, the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Okay, there's a bit of controversy over the years, centuries potentially, on this particular passage, or on this particular verse, how we understand that verb at the end of this sentence. Does this verse suggest that the world will be burned up, meaning completely destroyed, annihilated? No. That's not what this passage is driving at. That's not what this verse and that verb drives at. The proper understanding of this verse is that the earth and the works on it, what we do on the earth, will be laid bare, you could say, or found by God, found out by God, exposed. And this makes a, a great amount of significance in how we live, and, and Peter will point this out to us. But here's a key in this passage, if we think of it like this. In this passage, Peter speaks of three worlds. Okay, there's the first world, the world before judgment, the world before the flood. And then judgment comes, and sin and rebellion is wiped out at that point. And there's the new world, our present world. But it's the same world, isn't it? But then there's another world that Peter speaks of. It's the new heavens and the new earth that comes after another judgment in the future. But it's the same world. And so the point of this passage is that there is a judgment that is coming. But the judgment is not the annihilation of the world. It's not the complete destruction. It's more of a purging, of a cleansing, of a purification of this world. And this is cited at other places. In the Old Testament, Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, in chapter 3, verse 2, speaks of this speaks of the coming day of God as a refiner's fire that will purify his people. He says, he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Along these same lines, Peter, or Paul, picks up, uh, speaks of the fire of judgment that will test our human works. He says this in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day, capital D, will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. 
If the work that anyone has built on the foundation, meaning of Christ, survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Okay, so Peter has made the point that there is a refiner's fire that is coming that the earth will be transformed. And so the second question we have to wrestle with is, so what? What does that actually mean for us and how we live our lives in the present? I think it's helpful, at least it was helpful for me to think about the difference between an arsonist and a refiner. They both use fire, but for very different purposes. An arsonist hates, and so he uses fire to destroy. But a refiner loves, seeks treasure, seeks purity, and so uses fire to purify. And the scriptures attest that our God is not a cosmic arsonist. He is not out to destroy the world. And really, we can go back to Genesis. What did he claim about his creation? It is good. It is good. It is good. And what will he claim in the end? In the end, we can claim it will be perfectly good. And one theologian pointed out rightly, he says this, if God would have to annihilate the present cosmos, in other words, completely destroy it, Satan would have won a great victory. For then Satan would have succeeded in so devastating the present cosmos and the present earth that God could do nothing with it but to blot it totally out of existence. But Satan did not win such a victory. On the contrary, Satan has been decisively defeated. And so carrying along with, with, uh, with this thought, there's a common misunderstanding with this passage, and I'll try to be brief here. The common misunderstanding of this passage is that this is a pa- passage of rapture, that God will take his people out of the earth, meaning God will destroy the earth, but the saints will be taken out, will be taken away. But the Bible does not speak of a rapture. The Bible speaks of a resurrection. And we see this with Christ. The center of the whole Bible is the resurrection of Christ. Christ was resurrected. A new body. The scriptures claim we will be resurrected on the last day with a new body. And even the earth itself will undergo, we could say, a resurrection. In fact, John Calvin himself spoke of a resurrection of the creation. Not a rapture, but a resurrection. And this, here's why this is important. The final vision that the Bible gives us in Revelation is not of us escaping to some world in the clouds, in some existence. But the picture Revelation gives us is God himself coming down, bringing heaven to earth, dwelling on the new heavens and the new earth. And Revelation 21 says, it makes an incredible statement along the lines of, the fruit of human civilization will be brought into the city of God. Or again, as somebody else put it, whatever is beautiful, true, and good in human cultures will be cleansed from impurity, perfected, transfigured to become a part of God's new creation. So Peter, in this story, or in this, in this passage we have here, refers to the story of the flood, refers to Noah, 
And that's actually a really important piece for us. If you will, turn to uh, Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. I want to begin reading in verse 9. And this is the section. This is right after Noah was rescued, he and his family in the flood. This is the covenant that God establishes with Noah. He says this, verse 9, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth I establish my covenant with you that never again shall, I, shall all flesh be cut off from the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Verse 12, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. For I have set my bow in the cloud. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature and all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in these clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature and all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Do we get the point that God is making to Noah? Maybe we could ask it this way. How far does the covenant extend? Covenant extends to all the earth, all of creation. How far does the curse because of sin extend? To all the earth, all of creation. So what does this actually mean for us? It means that all of humanity, but all of the created order is important to God. So we can't assume that we have no responsibility here, that we're just tourists, so to speak, no investment here. In fact, God affirms his world. He affirms his creation. He is jealous for it. He has faithfully committed himself to it. And he does call us to do the same. We really and truly are to be a blessing to the world. Now, yes, in the proclamation of the gospel, in our words, in evangelism, yes, fully affirm that. But what also can't be neglected is everything else that we do that God cares about every square inch of our world. And so everything else that we do to be salt and light in the world, God cares about. If the world is going to burn up, if it's all going to burn, then really we, we do not have to care about the things of this world. But if the world is going to undergo a refiner's fire and a transformation, then that means God cares about everything that we put our hearts and our hands to. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10 affirms this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, in the body here on earth, whether good or evil. So what we do truly does matter, that all of our relationships, all of our responsibilities, done in faith and to the glory of God, contribute to the new heavens and the new earth. Okay. Let's step back for a second. We are talking about Judgment Day. 
So where's the grace in this passage? Where do we see grace? There's a couple of things that I think are worth pointing out. Two quick thoughts. Why does God bring up Judgment Day in the scriptures? Is it to scare us? Is it to keep us in suspense, to keep us guessing? Actually, Peter's words in verse 14 sum it up. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, meaning these things, the return of Christ, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. It's a great verse, and especially it echoes 1 Peter 1.19 where it's referred to Jesus, the blood of Jesus, who was a lamb without spot or blemish. The grace is the blood of Christ. As it covers us, we are without spot. We are without blemish. That's great grace to us. And yet Peter is on behalf or, or saying to us in light of that, be without spot in your bodies. Be without spot and blemish. Be at peace. We mustn't neglect this grace of God to us. And for others who would say, I just can't believe in a God of judgment. It's just too harsh. Again, recognize that this is about the gospel. That even look at verse 9. Uh, let me just say what verse 9 doesn't say. At the end of verse 9, it does not say, God, wishing that all would perish, but reluctantly save a few doesn't say that, and it doesn't say God, not wishing that any would perish, but that all would clean up their acts. doesn't say that either. It says God, wishing none would perish, but that all would reach repentance. That the ones who make it through Judgment Day are not the top 5% morally good people of our society, Right? It's not the good, the people pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps, so to speak. The ones who make it ju through Judgment Day are the repentant. It's those that recognize not what they do for God, but fully know what God has done for us through Christ, recognizing that there was a Judgment Day. It was on Christ, on Christ, on the cross, and that if we live in that shadow, the shadow of that cross, that this is glorious news of a judgment day when he will right all wrongs. So, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? We've received God's grace, and we're called to bear it to the world. And I just want to end with four W's, okay? We are to bear by God's grace to the world word Worship, welcome, and work. And I'll be brief on these. As far as the word and our relationships, as we have opportunities, we must be willing and able to proclaim this hope that we have, that Jesus did come, that there has been judgment in the past, and that we have a hope, an eternal hope through Christ. And this passage speaks of, in verse 12, that waiting, that we are to be waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. And it's amazing thought that God actually takes, in his sovereignty, he takes our actions into account with the return of Christ. He knows when it is, but in his sovereignty, he takes our actions into account. We have passages like Matthew 24. It says, And the gospel of the kingdom 
will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. We preach, we evangelize. God secures his people, and then the end will come. Okay, secondly, with our worship, we must seek to bring glory and joy to God. And we gather together here, and it's for great purpose, because our worship is a reminder that we need that he is in the center. Our worship reminds us of the past, of what God has done. Reminds us of the present, that it's activity in our lives, but it also reminds us week by week that there is a future reality of a judgment that is coming. And so we must not overlook our worship and what it does to our hearts and our souls and our neighbors as well. Our neighbors must see that we're committed to worship. They must be able to see that in us. The third W, welcome. In our welcome, I'll say it this way, Noah built a big boat. Our lives are to be a big boat where we are calling our neighbors, and I use neighbors loosely, neighborhoods, ball teams, people we rub shoulders with, in school, at work, at play. We really are calling our neighbors into a big boat. So our lives, we're calling them into our lives. What does that look like to call them into our lives? What does it look like to call them into our church body that we are welcoming in the name of Christ? And finally, with work, that God does care about every inch of creation, and God has gifted each one of us, God has gifted each one of us with abilities, and he's placed us in various spheres of society, and he has called us to that for his purpose and for his glory. And yes, everything that we do really does matter. And so again, if the world is all going to be abolished, it's meaningless. Why care about what we do? But, or we could say it this way, why work hard? Why make a tasty meal? Why conduct business to the glory of God? Why, does, why seek to, to live our lives and put our hands to things that will cause others around us to flourish? Why if it's all going to burn? But... If our daily work done to the glory of God and for the good of others somehow in an amazing way makes it over to the new heavens and the new earth as our work is purified, then our present work is overflowing with significance, isn't it? Okay, finally, this is not a doomsday passage for the believer. Notice, this is talking about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, and it's his special day. In our house, we have a blue plate that says, celebrate, this is your day. It's reserved for special occasions, for birthdays, things of that nature. This day is a special day. It is the day of the Lord. It is a day when everyone will acknowledge that he is king of kings and lord of lords. It is his special day. And we need God to be in the center of our lives. And this passage focuses us on God as the center of the universe. That we need God to be in the very center of our lives. And so this passage gives us a vision. What does it mean with our relationships and our responsibilities? What does it mean to be who has God called us to be? What sort of people ought we to be? We cannot overlook 
that God has called us to be people who understand that there is a refiner's fire that is coming and that all that we do matters for God's glory. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your reminder. It is a gracious reminder of your judgment day and help us to live our lives in light of that. Help us in our words that we would not be reluctant to proclaim your goodness to us and the reality of your return to our neighbors. Help us in our worship that we would be committed to you and that we would continue to bow our knees and our hearts to you in our worship. Help us in our welcome. Help us truly in our lives to build big boats that we would invite others into the hope that we have, that we would not be selfish with our time, that we would not be selfish with our gifts that you have given us. And help us in our work and all that we do to not neglect that you have called us to a a holy life, a diligent life, but a life that is lived for you and that as we go out in every sphere of society, I pray that that would cause the gospel to go out as well in word and in deed to every sphere of society. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now please stand for our benediction. Now receive this as the Lord's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations. Amen. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand And cast a wishful eye To Canaan's fair and happy land Where my possessions lie All o'er those wide extended plains Shines one eternal day. There God the Son forever reigns and scatters night away. I am bound. I am bound. I am bound for the promised land. I am bound, I am bound, I am bound for the promised land. No chilling winds, no poisonous breath can reach that When 